Good morning, Bethesda. How are you today? I guess it's spring break for so many of our folks, and I know that we've got folks that are traveling. Um, how many of you were here last Sunday? Let me see your hand. Okay, so this will make some sense to you. Um, I just, you know, Becky and I are constantly overwhelmed at how good you are to us uh, as a fellowship, and people give us things and send us things all the time, and someone sent us something this week. You got an up close... We just can't thank you enough for how good you are to us. <clears throat> if you weren't here last week, go listen to the message or ask your neighbor later. We are uh, almost fully recovered from that, and so the Lord is good. Amen. Uh, it was last week, I think, that Pastor Michael referred to it, and I'm glad that he did, and that is that we have yet another uh, language service that has begun here at Bethesda. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, I want just to, for you to see quickly, I think we have some pictures. Do you have some of the Spanish service that you can show us? Yes, there's Pastor Will preaching in the Spanish service, and uh, they're doing incredibly well. That was our first one, and then the next one was the Swahili service was the next group that started. They meet in the, uh, in the living room, and they, this was a group of them that went to some conference down in Houston. They left, so we have wonderful people that are part of the Swahili service, and we're delighted about that. Out of that came the French service, which I think is next, Pastor Israel. I didn't mention Pastor Joseph Bimenio is uh, Swahili. This is the French service with Pastor Israel, wonderful, wonderful group of people. Love them all. They're terrific. I've had the privilege of being part of their service before. And then next was the Korean service, and they've had quite a, they meet on Sunday afternoons, and they've had quite a boost happen in their service recently, and it is an amazing thing. That's the Korean group. Uh, and then there's a Burmese congregation that meets at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon from Burma, or to, known today as Myanmar, and that's the group that meets there. You've met some of their leaders. And then the brand new service is called a Kenyawanda. Kenyawanda is the language from Rwanda. Rwanda is a little postage stamp, stamp size country uh, right next to uh, Barate, which is south, just south of it. Both of them sit just to the west of Tanzania. And so we had a group of folks that began showing up last November, and we've been meeting with them. They had a big event here on um, New Year's Eve night. We actually had three African services taking place on New Year's Eve night, uh, and it was, a, it was a glorious time. I stopped by to see how they were doing. So the Lord just keeps expanding. So that's Spanish, Swahili, French, Korean, Burmese, Kenyawanda, and in addition to that, we are the mother church for a Vietnamese congregation that meets down in Haltom City. Can somebody say praise the Lord for that? It truly is amazing to see what the Lord is doing. So to God be the glory, great things He has done as we sang this morning. I want to mention again something that we've brought to you before. I just want to keep it before you, and that is our P2 program, a debt reduction program, special program designed a few years ago to help us eliminate the mortgage debt on our property here. The whole of our property is some 26, 27 acres and the facilities here. It's very simple. The program, what's a P2 program? It's very simple. Your tithe, your 10% that you give is supportive of the ministries of the church, and thank you for your faithfulness in doing that. 
But this P2 program was designed by church leadership whereby we've asked the congregation to give 2% above your tithe for debt reduction on the church property. Many of you have been faithfully doing exactly that for a long time, for as long as we've had the program. And we, again, we thank you for your faithfulness. I just want to encourage you this morning, whether you've been consistent or whether you've, it's slipped from your mind or you've slacked off, please continue in this endeavor because your P2 offerings, P2 stands for the power of two, uh, they make the mortgage payment for us. And if by chance the giving of the congregation exceeds that amount of the mortgage payment, then our, I'm told by our accounting office that every penny that is given above that goes directly toward the principal in reducing that debt. When we first began the program, the P2 program, our debt was close to $4.2 million. I don't remember exactly. Bobby, do you remember what year that was, that was when we started that? About 10 years ago, the debt was $4.2 million. Today, because of God's faithfulness in providing and your faithfulness in giving, our total debt on the whole of this campus is only $820,000. It's less than a million dollars. Church, that's the time that you say, it's the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. You know what? We're within striking distance of having this whole campus, every bit of it. That includes the new property that we just purchased this last year, that extra little strip on the east edge, uh, eastern border of our, of our property. The whole thing, $820,000. We're within striking distance of being a f- completely debt-free congregation. I don't know that I've ever been a part of a mortgage burning service, but I'm going to have one here. We're going to set this place on fire the day, that, uh, the day that we are able to complete that. So somebody who's with me, say hallelujah. So thank you for your faithfulness in giving. Again, if you uh, stay with the P2 program, that's what's getting closer and closer to that all the time. Today we're going to take a moment and look at uh, a snapshot in the life of David. It all started with a song that some ladies began singing after he had killed Goliath. You've heard it. Uh, We find the song in 1 Samuel 18, verse 7, and it goes something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And what we know is that David's boss, King Saul, also heard that song, uh, which is heralding David as a hero, and that didn't go so well. He wasn't happy to hear that he was just attributed for killing thousands, and yet the young whippersnapper was credited with killing tens of thousands. And then verse 8 of 1 Samuel 18 tells us exactly how that went. It said, this made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, That really set the tracks for what was going to happen. Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God, which I understand it means God allowed that to take place, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, good, faithful, practicing musician, but Saul had a spear in his hand. Can I just say this? A tormenting spirit and a spear in your hand is not a good combination. Verse 11, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall, but David escaped him twice, which tells us that either Saul was a terrible shot or David was really fast, one one or the other, I'm not sure which. So we see here that it happened twice in verse 11. Uh, 
Now I'm going to jump over to chapter 19 of 1 Samuel because it's going to happen again in verse 9. 1 Samuel 19, verse 9. But one day when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. As David played his harp, Saul hurled his spear at David, but David dodged out of the way and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. I, I don't know about you, I'm just, I think three spear, three spear throwings would convince me that things are not good with me and my boss. How about you? Probably the first one, the first spear throwing would have been enough to send me out the door. Anybody with me on that this morning? So now we know that David escapes, but for whatever reason, and you know the story, Saul just can't seem to let it go. And then so now, because of this issue and Saul's rage and his jealousy over David, the story gets more and more interesting. First Samuel 24, here's what Saul did. He chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. Don't you look at that and go, 3,000 men, really? It, wouldn't that be what we would call overkill? Say the word overkill. Two words, one word, whatever it is. Isn't that a bit overkill, I think most of us would say, just to go after one guy? Well, here's Saul and his 3,000 men on a journey looking for David, and the rest stop for them wouldn't just be off the interstate as it is for us today. The rest stop for them was a cave, and it just happened to be the cave that David was hiding in. And yes, it is what you think it is. That's the very cave Saul chooses to go to the bathroom in. The Bible literally says, I'm going to read it in a second, to relieve himself. So while this is taking place in the further back part of the cave, David and his men are hiding further back in the cave, and they're thinking this is the moment that they can exact re revenge on the man who's trying to kill David. This is our moment. 1 Samuel 24, verse 3. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now is your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, they're saying to him, to him I will certainly put your enemy into, you, into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and he cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe while he's going to the bathroom. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut off a piece of Saul's robe. And he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one. Probably the first, if maybe the very first place we see that phrase in Scripture, the Lord's anointed one. For the Lord himself has chosen him. Verse 7. So David restrained his men, and he did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, obviously at a safe distance, My Lord, the King! And when Saul turned around, David bowed low before him. And then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say that I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it's not true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. 
Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It's a, it's, it's a piece of the, the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you, David said. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? In other words, David is saying to him, I'm nothing. Why are you wasting your time on me? Why would you pursue me? Why would you gather 3,000 men and waste their time on me? And then we see this rather interesting turn in the narrative because Saul starts to, it appears that he starts to feel bad at this point. We can't really call it repentance, but we will see then later in chapter 26 that he truly is not repentant. However, what the Scripture tells us is that Saul began to cry, and then he said in verse 17, he said, You are a better man than I am, David, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today, for when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be the king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. So Saul acknowledges by the, uh, by the Holy Spirit that David would be the next king of Israel. Verse 24, then Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. And so ends chapter 24. Then eventually, chapter 26, which we won't get to today, Saul continues to pursue David. He goes right back on the hunt to get back to David, pursue him to kill him. And we see that Paul truly was not repentant because you know what repentance means. Repentance means that you do a 180. You turn from the direction that you are going. If this is the way you're headed and you truly are repentant, of whatever it is, an attitude, an action, of whatever it is that you're repenting of, literally repentance means you do a 180 and you go in the opposite direction. But what we see Paul doing is not a 180. I don't know if I can do this and stay standing. He's doing a 360. Pretty good, huh? Whereas I'm dizzy now and I can't stand. It looked for a moment back in chapter 24 that he was going to be repentant. But that wasn't the final result as we see in chapter 26 because his moment wore off. The music stopped, if you will, and Saul returned to his deadly pursuit of David. Okay, that's the background. Get all that in place. Just say to me, I got it. Okay, the place that I want us to spend our time this morning is between, this moment in cha- is between this moment in chapter 24 where Saul looked like he was going to repent and chapter 26 where he does the 360. In other words, I want us to focus on chapter 25. So what's in chapter 25? It is a story in the midst of David being pursued by Paul. Now, I, I didn't just waste your last few minutes. There's a reason why you have to have all that background to understand why this chapter 25 story is significant. 
It's where we see David meeting someone who uh, the Bible essentially paints as a hot-headed fool. That's basically what, what he's... His name is Nabal. Say Nabal. And his wife was Abigail. First Samuel 25, verse 2 says, There was a wealthy man from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. Some versions say intelligent and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings. Now, when you read this, does it not beg the question, how can you be intelligent? How can the Bible call you sensible and marry him? Here's this woman who the Bible says is smart and pretty. She's got it all. And she marries a crude, mean dude. How many of you have ever seen that happen? Okay, put your hand down quickly. Hurry, really quick. Just a little side note here. How many of you know it is better to wait and be lonely than to marry and be miserable? Some of those amens are pretty potent. There we go. Okay, we got it. We understand. You can stop now. For whatever reason, Abigail hooks up with Nabal. Who knows why? And David is camping in Carmel. And the way it worked like this. If an army camped in your field, they came near you, they were camping out there, they would protect you for whatever period of time they were going to be. That was, that was just the agreement. You're, you're going to protect that whoever lives in that area. If they're in your field, they protect you, but you in turn would give them something back. You would give them food. You would give them water. You would offer them supplies or, or some sort of provision. And David and his 600 men were, were needing these provisions. Now, that's the way it, it was supposed to go, 1 Samuel 25. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I'm told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us uh, here near Carmel, we never harmed them. And nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men and they will tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us since we have come to a time of celebration? And would you please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and, and your friend David? Now this is David's messengers, the young men who went to... And would you, would you, would you share that, Nabal, with, with, with David's men here? David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name and they waited for the reply. And here's what I want us to see this morning. Chapter 25, verse 10. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does the son of Jesse think he is? There's lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. You're telling me, I added that part, should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and given to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where. Now watch this. 
So David's young men returned and told him, David, what Nabal had said. And I'm sure they told him the way he said it. Get your swords, was David's reply. Get your swords! Made him mad. He strapped on his own. And then 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. What a crazy reaction this is. I think this is David in overkill. Say it. And I don't know about you, but it makes me want to say to David, David, why do you care what these men say? Why do you care what Nabal has to say? Doesn't this sound strangely familiar to anybody? The very thing, hear me, the very thing he told Saul is coming back to him. Nabal says crazy things about David. David gets 400 men to strap on their swords and says, since this man said this, said this, we're going to take 400 men and we're going to go kill him. Think for a moment, Bethesda. David is now becoming the very man he's running from. 3,000 men Saul marshaled to kill David because he didn't like what the ladies were singing. He didn't like that. Made him jealous. Made him mad. So his conclusion, we're going to kill him. I'm going to get 3,000 of my best guys. Surely 3,000 of us can kill him. And now the numbers have changed. It's not 3,000, it's 400. And David finds himself responding to Nabal, the hot-headed fool. And he didn't like what Nabal said. So who is this David? Who does he think he is? David didn't like the way that came. He didn't like his attitude. Didn't like his response. They'd been protecting his sheep shearers. And he didn't like that. He thought he should have given him some provision. So David marshals 400 men and he says, I don't like that guy. I don't like what he did. Kill him! Get your swords on. Go kill him! And David doesn't even realize that he is now Saul. David is exactly the person that he's been running from. David is now exactly the person that he never wanted to be like. But David hits a situation the situation with Nabal, and the very thing he swore he would never be, the very thing he swore he would never do, he has become. The numbers changed. The actors have changed. But the outcome is the same as David becomes that person. How many of you have ever heard these words? I'll never be like my dad. I'll never treat my children the way my mother treated me. Well, keep watching. Because people somehow end up becoming the very person they think they are running from. You spend your Christian life running from, and then you hit a moment in your life, and it eventually catches up to you. And then you say those words, Oh, dear God, I'm acting just like. I've become just like my dad. 
become just like that uncle who I never wanted to be like. Because you have spent your life trying to avoid something. I've been in church leadership position for more than 45 years. I was three when I started. I've encountered thousands of people. It is amazing to watch the verbally abused become verbal abusers. It is so sad when the sexually abused become one who then sexually abuse another. It's unfortunately common to see a father who abandons watch his son then abandon his family. And so often the financially irresponsible affect their children who then become financially irresponsible. And like David, you become what you swore you would never be like. Looking at this story, I've come to the moment where I have to say, God help us. Show us what being a Christian really is in light of these things. Surely, God, in your redemptive grace, there's another way that these stories can play out. Let me help us turn this around today with three quick points. Number one, if you're taking notes, this is number one. Christianity is never running from, but running to. Say that with me. You don't become a Christian just so that you don't ever become like him. You don't become a Christian just so that you never become like her. Christianity is not so that you just don't have to go to jail or so that you don't have to deal with this or you don't have to become like that. Christianity is never running from because what you run from will eventually catch up to you. Becoming a Christian is not to avoid something. Becoming a Christian is to become something. Your pursuit is not so that you won't become like someone else that you don't want to be like. Christianity is your pursuit to become like Christ Jesus the Lord. Christianity is to be Christ-like. Christianity is to be imitating Christ. It is fully embracing God through the person of Jesus Christ, his son. Can I get an amen to that this morning? Being a Christian is to look more and more and more and more like Jesus as he takes you from glory to glory, from grace to grace, and from revelation to revelation. Christianity is not running from. It is running to the person of Jesus Christ. And look what David was running from. He had a father, Jesse, who had all but forgotten him. Remember, Jesse, oh yeah, I, I think I got one more son out in the field. Here's Samuel. You didn't like any of these guys? Uh, yeah, there's one more. His dad all but forgot him. And his boss, Saul, who was throwing spears at him. David said, I'm never going to be like them. Never going to do it. And it caught up to him. Don't spend all your energy running from your DNA. Spend your energy running to the Lord Jesus. Christianity shows us how to truly be the, the, like the right person. It's being like Jesus. Is there an amen in the house this morning? Number two, you and I need people to snap us out of those moments when we're about to do something crazy. 
We need people to snap us out of those moments. In the case of 1 Samuel 25, it was Abigail, the wife of Nabal. Listen to me carefully, 1 Samuel 25, 14. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail, the wife, the smart and pretty one, and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he, he screamed, Nabal screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and, and the sheep. You need to know this, Abigail, and figure out what to do, for there's going to be trouble if our master and his whole family, it, it, he's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Don't raise your hand, but do you know anybody like that? Nervous laughter, nervous laughter, nervous laughter. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes, and she packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead. I'll follow behind you shortly. She didn't tell her husband, Nabal, what she was doing. Smart woman. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and she said, I accept all the blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal, my husband, is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw, I didn't even see the young men that you sent. Now watch this, watch this. Abigail is not only helping to cover her hot-headed fool of a husband. She's also helping keep David from doing something stupid, killing her husband. Help me to communicate this, Lord. In the 1990s, in the first 10 years or so of the 2000s, I went around the country while I was serving as minister of music here, and I taught at a lot of music conferences. And uh, usually they called on me to, because I'd been one place here so long and built and maintained a music ministry, and, and you know, they were asking me how you do that over a long period of time. And, and I would teach all kinds of seminars. That's actually how I first met Brent and Janice in Nashville. I was teaching one. I did them all over the country, and it was, it was a joy. Four, five, six a year I would, I would do. <coughs> and um, one of the breakout subjects that I was always asked, Dan, can you be sure and do that seminar on conflict resolution? I was very experienced with conflict resolution. And so, <clears throat> would you do that? Yeah, and so I have a whole, had a whole seminar that I talked about conflict resolution, which came out of my years of working with people and observing people who get in all kinds of, get in all kinds of, of conditions. And one of the points, there's, it's a whole hour-long seminar, but one of the points that I thought of as I see what Abigail's doing here is a point that I used to make, and that is this. There are times when someone who is maybe otherwise even good intentioned, someone even that you like, they have a crazy moment. Anybody ever have a crazy moment? Your thinking just goes out the window. I have watched people, Pastor Michael got my prop for me, aren't you proud I'm using a prop this morning? Come on. 
I have watched people work themselves into a corner. I'm going to call it today the crazy corner. And they get themselves in a corner through their thoughts, through their emotions, through the intensity of whatever's happened and maybe a composite of lots of things. And they start coming because they've gotten, they've worked themselves into a corner. And all kinds of stupid stuff comes out of their mouth and stupid thinking and illogical stuff. And they've, got, they've gotten in this place. Let's call it the crazy corner. They feel trapped by it. And I, I used to watch that. I think this person, that's not the one I've known for 10, 15, 20 years. They're in an altered state. And it's like they've gotten themselves in this corner and they just keep fighting and they just keep talking and they, they keep trying to figure out if I just keep talking long enough, I'll, I'll get myself out of this corner and this mindset and this crazy way that I'm thinking right now. When I teach on conflict resolution, the way I see that is like, Josh, come here. You're a perfect candidate to be in the crazy corner. Come on. <laughs> huddle, huddle back in there. No, 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 no. This side of it. No, 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 this way. He's in the crazy corner. He's had all kinds of weird thoughts, all kinds of stuff, and he's saying stuff that makes no sense. But the discriminating person with wisdom and discernment will know how to say, put your hand out. Come on, buddy. I'm going to help you. I'm going to get you out of that corner. You can go sit down. You did a great job. The person who's willing to be the adult in the room, the person who's willing to look through the lens of wisdom and go, wait, wait, wait a minute, that's not the way Josh would normally. He's allowed himself to get into this place. He's saying and doing things he wouldn't normally do. And you know what? Every once in a while, church, you got to give somebody a free pass. Get you a big old collection of free passes. Walmart has them on sale today. Get a big old pile of free passes. And I've had to learn to do this. I've had to tell some staff people recently, you know what, I don't think that's the normal, that's not the way we've known them. I think you need to give them a free pass. Let them get by with that. You can, we'll address it somewhat. We'll acknowledge it. But let's don't harbor that and hold that because that's not them. That's them in a corner. That's them in the crazy corner. That's the way they're acting. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Have you ever known anyone who worked themselves into the crazy corner? People can just do it for whatever reason. But the person with wisdom will say, come on, buddy. Come on, let me help you out. And that is exactly what David had sense enough to realize, that that's what Abigail was doing for him. For he says this in 1 Samuel 25. David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord. The God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. Most versions would not put the word murder in there. It would say bloodshed. Bless you for keeping me from bloodshed and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. And there's a side note here that I find fascinating. Do you recall that David wanted to be the one who, to build the temple for the Lord? First Chronicles 17. Lord, I want to do it. 
got all the stuff. I want to be the one to honor you. I want to be the one to build the temple. Was David the one who built the temple? Who was? His son Solomon built the temple. Why? Because God had determined that he wanted a man of peace, not a man of war, to build the temple. A man of peace, not a man of war, for the dwelling place for his presence. In 1 Chronicles 28, God makes it clear that David had been involved in too much bloodshed to be chosen to build the temple. Are you still with me? By Abigail coming and taking David and getting him out of the crazy corner, taking him by the hand, giving him a free pass, and her taking responsibility, helping him out of the crazy corner, keeping him from shedding more blood, the blood of her husband, who knows how much she was helping David? Who knows what Abigail was saving him from? Is it possible she was helping to prevent David from losing other opportunities in the sight of God for the work of God? Because that would have been yet another bloodshed moment on his resume. And she helped him avoid that. Thank God for people in your life, be it a spouse, one of your children, one of the pastors, a loved one, whoever it is, who can get in your face and say, don't do this. Don't kill him. I know you want to. Don't kill her. Don't do it. You never know what you are helping to keep someone from when you're willing to snap them out of the moment. Christianity is not running from. It's running to. You need people in your life with the ability to snap you out of crazy moments. And finally this. You still with me? One last point. We need to remember that it is possible for us to become intoxicated with the moment, but God always sees the bigger picture. How often have you and I become intoxicated with the passion, the intensity of the moment, and willing to make decisions and take actions, while all the while God said, there's a bigger picture. 400 men, got all stirred up, testosterone taking over, get your swords, let's go kill. God says, no, 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 no. There's a bigger picture here. The moment was screaming, let's get revenge for the way he's talked to David. The moment was shouting, we protected Nabal and his people, and he won't even offer any provision for us. And he's being a total jerk about it. Let's get him. That was the intoxication of the moment. But God said, no, there's a much bigger picture here than what you are seeing, and I'm going to do something that you are not even grasping in this moment because you are too drunk on the intoxication of revenge. Bethesda, Brent, come on and help me here so I can quit sometime soon. If you were to look up in the sky, astronomers tell us that with the naked eye, you can see approximately 2,000 stars. But just because that's all you can see doesn't mean that that's all there is. Do you know what astronomers tell us? 
We have a picture of the galaxy that you can show. Astronomers tell us, and I've done my research, there are about 10 billion galaxies in the observable universe. The number of stars in each galaxy varies, but it is safe to assume about 100 billion stars per galaxy. So if you do the math, that means that there are 1 billion trillion stars in the observable universe. That's one with 21 zeros behind it. And do you know what the Bible has the audacity to say? It tells us that God knows them all by name. Some of you mamas can't even remember the names of your children in order. Sheridan, you put the dogs and the cats in that line, you finally call the right one. He knows them all by name. Why does he know them all that by name? It's because he's a great God. And just because you and I only see 2,000 of them doesn't nullify the fact that there are 100 billion trillion of them in the observable universe. God sees so much further than you and I do. He sees so much higher than you and I do. His ways, his thoughts are so much higher than ours. And God was saying to David, David, you've got more journey ahead of you. You're not going to mess this up. I'm going to send Abigail and she's going to pull you out of that corner. Pull you out of the crazy corner. You've got more journey ahead. I cannot have you being a revengeful man. I'm, I'm seeing a lot more to this, David. You could end up with your 400 guys and do what you're planning on doing and the story could be over for you. But David, your destiny is far, 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 far greater than what you're seeing today. And church, if the Lord is saying anything to you today, he's saying this, your destiny is far, far, far greater than what you are seeing with the observable eye today. You're seeing, David, a little 2,000-star navel irritation. You're irritated. It's a 2,000-star viewpoint. But I have a 100 billion trillion star destiny for your life. Oh, David, I've got plans for you. I've got stuff you need to do. You've got to write some psalms. There's a bunch of psalms to be written that's not only for you and not only for the people that you know and that, you're, that, that, that are in your life now, but it's going to be all the way down through the ages because guess what? There's going to be a church in 2019 in Fort Worth, Texas called Bethesda. And they're going to have this amazing choir that encourages and uplifts and edifies people with psalms like Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And then David, 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 don't forget, I've got another psalm, Psalm 34, that that choir is going to sing. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. David, you've got to write that for Bethesda. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David, I've got such a much bigger plan than this little 2,000-star navel irritation that you can see only in this moment. No, 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 no. The plan is much bigger for you. Your reach, the effect of your life, your influence is not 2,000 stars. It's 100 billion trillion stars. Church, my admonition to you today, don't get drunk on the intoxication of the moment. 
don't get taken away with one tiny space in time that has irritated you, offended you, made you mad, hurt your feelings. Don't get drunk on the intoxication of those emotions that you're feeling. There is a bigger, bigger picture, a grander view, and our great God has every bit of it right in the palm of his hand. Somebody say hallelujah. Come on, stand with me. I want you to put your hands together and give the Lord praise for his goodness to us today. Come on, bless the Lord. Sing with me. Oh, how great is our God. Sing it. the name above all names. You're the name. Is our God. Lift it up. You're the name above all names. Oh, yes, you are, Lord. You are worthy of all praise. How great is our God. Sing it one more time. How great is our God? How great. And all will see how great, how great is our God. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Christianity is not running from, it's running to. And our running is toward the Christ, to be like Him in all things. You need people in your life with the ability to snap you out of the crazy moments of your life. We all have them. I have more than most of you. Don't reject those people. I know you want to smack them in that moment, but don't reject them. Thank God that he has placed them in your life. When you take a step back and get your sensibilities back in order, you know what? They did that for the right reason. They were trying to help me. They probably kept me from more bloodshed, which then might have kept me from something else God had in mind for me. And remember that God has a 100 billion trillion star view of your life. He's not looking at the snapshot of this one moment, this one day, this one season. Lift your eyes, church. Lift your eyes to see a great God who has incredible destiny for you. In the name of Jesus. Can you say amen to that? 
Just a reminder that we are entering into our Immersed Bible week, reading week number 11. This week we start the Gospel of Matthew. We'll spend all this week and next week on that wonderful book. Please join us wherever you are in the process. Just pick up on page 311 of your Immersed Bible. Let's all start this afternoon or tomorrow on the book of Matthew. And I want to tell you this because many have been asking. Very soon, Pastor Michael will be laying out um, the program as to the opportunity for you to continue reading past Easter. The pastors have designed something I think will be pleasing for you and gives you options and tells you where we will go from there. And in the next week or two, I'm sure he will do that. And then also in our prayer service tonight, we have a focus on families. There's some incredible testimonies I've already heard about today that will be shared tonight. If you would like to have your family pray for, join us for the 6 p.m. service tonight. Um, also, Bethesda School of Ministry is going to be sharing with us about, you don't know this yet, Dr. Marty, I want you all to talk about the incredible day that you had yesterday at the laundromat. I'm, I'm told, I received this text this morning, six people received Christ as their Savior at the laundromat yesterday through the ministry of Bethesda School of Ministry. Am I right? All right, here's how we're going to close this service. As you came to the end of your immersed reading this week, you've, you found that we finished the little book of Jude, Right? For the author, the half-brother of Jesus, gives us this beautiful benediction that I have always, always loved. And I want us to say it together. Please put it on the screen for us. And this is how we're going to close today. This will be our benediction. Now, when we say something together, don't say it quietly. Don't say it under your breath. This is designed for you to lift your voice and speak it out, particularly if you believe it with all of your heart. Let's say it together. Now, all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. Give him praise today. Have a great afternoon, church. God bless you.